been uh, trying to survive for the last 10 years. We are not dying tomorrow. Charles Kanamugire is the managing director of Kigali Today, a media company in Rwanda, which he started in 2011. From the beginning, it was all digital. I believed in online. <laughs> For me, there was no future in, the, in print. And yet he soon realized that the company would not survive if it was only online. I went online and then I realized uh, most people here are not yet ready to listen to radio online because 60% of Rwandans are listening to radio on a daily basis. So radio is by far the biggest medium. Today, along with a web presence in English and Kinyawanda, Kigali Today also has a radio station, and that's where most of the revenue for the company comes in. Though that has been dwindling, and the COVID pandemic has dealt a blow, like to many media on the continent. This is The Backstory, a podcast from Wenifra, the World Association of News Publishers. I'm Andy Heslop, Wenifra's Press Freedom Executive Director. This season, we're looking at media across Africa, a continent of 54 countries, each with a unique media landscape, distinct set of press freedom challenges, and mounting financial pressures. In this episode, financing African journalism. In a time of exceptional crisis for newsrooms and media companies everywhere, how are African media businesses coping? Where is money coming from? And how is the digital transition helping or hindering a future economic model? I am fundamentally concerned about what happens to journalism in Africa in the next five to ten years. This is an industry that is under pressure from all different directions. They are really, really, really dependent on advertisers supporting them. They're dependent on the public supporting them and often under extreme duress, whether from government regulation, war. I would be fundamentally concerned had I not met such amazing and fantastic people and great teams. The level of energy and people really trying new things is really good to see people actually trying things and not being scared to try. Kigali Today is one of Rwanda's top media companies. Its Kinyawanda website is one of the top three in the country, while its YouTube channel has over 100 million views. But the business survives from revenue coming into KT Radio, the only private nationwide radio station in the country. The money comes from ads paid airtime. Charles Kanemugiri says the government remains the biggest client. He told Backstory producer Sarah Elsus that the move online is not happening quickly. The audience is going online. We have most platforms, we are more connected here, but advertisers are, aren't following. So for them, if you have a radio or, or a TV station, for example, when we don't have a TV station because we believe our YouTube channel uh, with our 100 million views, we are bigger than most TV stations here. But we don't get, maybe I, I wouldn't be making one-tenth of what they can make, not even there. So the digital transformation isn't just training journalists. It's also to change the culture of advertisers and say, actually, this is where you need to be focused and this is where the business needs to change. Yeah, sure. So the, the, we need the change in mentality. We need to, to teach people to make them understand for what, what's coming. Is that happening fast enough? I mean, I want to ask you, you know, how's the business going? COVID, I know, has, has done a number on quite a lot of media around the world. I don't know how you have weathered it. How are things going today? Uh, well, we struggled. We struggled, uh, of course. The fact that we had to keep working fully while every other person had to scale down activities. So 
we kept working 100% and we weren't making any money. So it was very difficult. We, we had to go to banks and everyone. Because you, could, you couldn't cut on uh, people's salaries when you asked them to make an effort. We didn't touch on salaries and it really affected our revenues and projections. How are things shifting now that, that things are reopening, the world is changing a bit? Yeah, for example, we decided not only during the pandemic, but uh, from now on, would be most people would be working from home. So we no longer need a big office. So rent is going to go down. We are seeing some positive changes. We've been shifting from, depending from the government, to NGOs. We noticed that uh, NGOs are they have more money than, I mean, communication money. I think most NGOs dealing with health issues, social issues, they think they need to communicate more. Are the costs of doing journalism going up? Yes, especially that we also have to face a new, new competitors, I mean, social influencers and all. So the cost of producing good content is going up uh, because you have to make sure Whatever you're giving to your audience is totally different from someone who's not doing it professionally. You have to counter the fake news and uh, gossips and everything. So it becomes more costly and more difficult. You know, we are even sharing advertising. We share advertising with influencers because advertisers, they are looking for numbers. They don't care if it's coming from an influencer who has posted something uh, fake yesterday. So we, we, we are facing a tough competition and their costs are not uh, as high as ours. And the obligations to the society, journalistic uh, ethics and the ontology is not the same. So for them, it's easier to produce things. And then on the market, we need to share the market. I don't uh, think at this stage uh, cutting costs uh, is something that we can do. I used to have a reporter by district. We have 30 districts here. We were at 103, the whole staffing of Kigali today. Now we have 56. So it took us five years to consolidate. And now we think we cannot do it no more. We reached a point where if you cut, you are killing it. So now we need to find new ways of making money. Lisa McLeod has thought a lot about this question. As advertising, the mainstay for media companies is disappearing, what are new ways of making money? McLeod is a digital media consultant who's advised media companies throughout the continent on their revenue models as well as ways to stabilize their business. She told Sarah Elsus that newspapers around the world, and in Africa in particular, had been struggling even before COVID, but that the pandemic has accelerated the problems. The business model is still very much around, uh, or has been up until very recently, around print. Uh, the print environment, I think, has been dealt an enormously big blow by COVID. A lot of the newsrooms in Africa have actually stopped printing altogether. So circulation has suffered massively, and also we've had a very, very big um, a big dive in, in advertising spend as well. Advertisers stopped spending because everybody tightened their belt. So I would say that a lot of, a lot of the news organizations in Africa that were under pressure 
have actually now found themselves at the end of an already short runway in terms of what they're going to be doing with their business models. So on some level, COVID kind of pushed what was inevitable, made it a lot, maybe a few years sooner. Very much for many of them, this has expedited their move to digital as much as possible. Unfortunately, when I talk about the move to digital, when you think about uh, trying to work out product development in an African newsroom, for example, you're taking into consideration pressures like the cost of data, um, you're thinking about infrastructure. You're thinking about cost of living standards. So like, you know, you want to come up with an app or something and you're wondering if people would ever download it because they don't have enough bandwidth or that kind of thing. Unlike an audience in Europe where you are speaking to predominantly iPhone users who have ubiquitous Wi-Fi, they have 5G available to them, 164 gigs of of, of download uh, space on their, on their mobile phones. The average African audience member that you're talking to possibly has a cell phone that can allow one or two apps at a time. So there's a lot of app swapping, for example, which is something that is extremely difficult to manage in terms of your mobile environment because publishers are competing for that real estate. But also, I mean, some countries in Africa have some of the most expensive data in the world. It is enormously expensive. So there's a spectrum problem. There is an infrastructure problem. It is very, very difficult to connect with people. All of these publishers do actually have websites, but in terms of in terms of trying to stay in touch with their paying population, what they're trying to do is to actually distribute their e-papers as a substitute for the print paper. In some cases, they've done very well. There's been quite a lot of innovation that's come out of that. The thing is, um, in the longer term, we are encouraging as much as possible for them to think of other ways of actually distributing content that is not in e-paper format. Uh, to think about how to monetize their actual web presence in a, in, a, in a more constructive way that doesn't involve digital advertising only in the long term. Why are you encouraging people to try to move away from digital ad sales? The thing that with digital or online advertising is that for many years now, it's becoming a really a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. It really relies on what we have now discovered is an enormous uh, enormous amount of scale, none of which is very helpful when you are not a scale player in any way. It has been an enormous challenge for many of these small organizations. I mean, there are very few that are, that have actually managed to scale enough to make money out of digital advertising. It is never going to replace the advertising money that we got from print. Uh, and therefore, it is not a good solution for anybody to attempt to monetize their business through digital advertising alone. The savior for the industry is, is for the most part, reader revenue. So talking about actually charging for content, paywalls, paywalling content. Now, Their businesses in Africa have a particular challenge here. Many of them have cleaned out their newsrooms of expensive journalists. They've had such big cost-cutting to attempt to survive that the quality of journalism that they're able to provide is much lower than the majority of people are prepared to pay for. But this strikes me, and this is a worldwide problem for everything you get for free, from music to finding movies online. How do you suggest that, that media organizations do this, and in particular in Africa? Um, where the context might be more difficult. Look, I can think of a couple of examples now. The the Financial Gazette in Zimbabwe, we have um, the Standard Group in Kenya, and most recently the Nation Group in Kenya as well, have actually put up paywalls over the last uh, year or so. They are fairly low, low price paywalls in the, in the bigger scheme of things. 
Um, but what has really surprised me is the level of take-up. I mean, I think that this notion that people will not pay for journalism or will not pay for good journalism is actually faulty. And I'm delighted about that because the take-up for the nation group specifically and, and, and for the standard group has been fantastic. And I think that the fact that they are local news that are inter integral to their readers' lives, these are all very good reasons to allow readers to understand that without their support – these organizations won't be around for, for very much longer. So you're encouraging media then in Africa to really accept that, realize that maybe people will pay for news and start focusing on that kind of model. Yes, I am. Because I think, you know, the thing is that it, it, a lot of people have always paid for news. What is different is that it's being distributed to people in a slightly different way. In Kenya, where there's a lot of technology and innovation, with more resources than in many other countries in the region, media companies are experimenting with new revenue models. But financial expert Alex Owino, who's been looking into the financial situation for Kenyan media, finds they are struggling. As he told Backstory producer Mariona Sanz, COVID is just the latest shock to hit media in Kenya over the last decade. The first shock was the global financial crisis of 2008. The next is a very stealthy shock which is the rise of digital accompanied simultaneously by the decline of print. Then the third shock was our economy then tanked from around 2012. And advertising revenue is very closely associated with the growth of the economy. And then the fourth shock was an internal shock. The media refused to spend money to invest in um, their transformation. So they shipped out most of the profits to shareholders as dividends. And then the last shock, of course, is um, uh, from March 2020, when the pandemic then hit us. Do you think that these are also applicable to other African countries or even in other parts of the world? I believe they apply globally as well, especially to Africa, especially that uh, rise of digital and decline of print. Our media is still very traditional, yet we know that audiences, especially the young African audiences where over 50% of our population is under the age of 32, that audience has shifted totally to the digital space. I can tell you like my son or my daughter, they're in the early 20s. If you ask them when is the last time you bought the newspaper, they probably would have to scratch their head because through social media, they get news updates in real time. So they don't wait for the evening news. They don't wait for tomorrow's newspapers. That is why you have seen that in the rest of Africa, dictators try to kind of muzzle uh, social media when they're in trouble. We saw that in Nigeria with Twitter and in our neighboring country, Uganda. Around the elections, they normally close social media completely. That demonstrates the power of that demographic moving towards the social media space and the digital space. So print is still an important segment, but it's in gradual decline. It's just a question of time, and time is a few years before the print editions are actually shattered. They are mothballed, they are consigned to the dustbin. No more than three or four years. So what do media need to do today to survive or even to flourish in the new future? They need to do two things. One is a transformation, what I call a structural transformation of the organization. Then the other one is a 
digital transformation. Content, content, content. The people, people, people. And then data, data, data. That is the easy part for most of our media. The difficult part which they're not doing is that organizational transformation. To give you an example, most of the directors are doing 20 plus tenures on the board. That mirrors also the longevity of leaders in Africa. So when you have a board of a media house where the chairman is now maybe on his 10th or 15th year and his previous posting was CEO for about 20 years, that tells you the difficulty in transforming the organization. Well, you're saying new people to lead the organization, but you were also saying seasoned journalists. Can you explain yes. a little bit what, you, what you're referring to when you say content, content, content? Over the last seven, eight years, our media houses have shared stuff. And when you lose or lay off journalists, you tend to lose the better ones. You tend to lose the ones that people buy the newspaper to read about this person. The other one is content requires investigative journalism. That's not being done because you have young people or temporary staff who cannot do it. You need a very experienced journalist. That content then is lacking, both in the terms of opinions, in terms of strong investigative journalism, in terms of strong exposés. Our media, they don't have content we can pay for now. So even if they want to digitally transform, the organizational transformation will not allow them to have content worth paying for. That's the danger. So I don't see you very optimistic. I think uh, financially, the media in Kenya is on a death spiral. That will continue. Uh, there'll be a small little bump due to the election next year. You know, the normal electoral spending. But that will just postpone the inevitable and then a sudden moment when the media will basically say we need to be acquired by somebody else or we need to shut up shop. They simply will not have the revenue to maintain the media in the current form they're in. And the same for most media in Africa. Yes, they can slim down, they can cut costs. As they do that, they lose the content that people can pay for. That's the danger. Remember when you lose the newsroom, you're losing the content provider, the content generators. But where can money come from today? One is uh, the most immediate one I see. The media will be bought by billionaires. This is the Washington Post model, like the rich man Bezos owns it. The second is from the Australian media bargaining code. That is the more immediate way to make them sustainable. Make sure the tech giants under law, under legislation, like Australia, can share revenue with the media. The third is one I don't recommend, which is donor-funded media, because then the donor dictates the editorial policy. The, other, the last one is taxpayer-funded media. Again, our taxpayers through the finance ministries don't have the money to do it. So the commercial side of the media has to sustain itself and they must do it fast. I expect major changes. I truly do not think that everybody is going to survive, but I think that applies to journalism across the world. 
you know, quite frankly. But I think times of scarcity actually really do inspire innovative solutions to things. And um, that is something we see a lot of on the African continent and other developing nations as well. Lisa McLeod is already seeing interesting new initiatives. I think of the Weekend Post in Botswana, for example. Weekend papers have a particular challenge because they don't have recency or frequency of content during the week. What they did was they produced a two-page PDF that came out on a Wednesday and they sold advertising against it. So they actually ended up with an extra edition, if you like, that they could sell advertising on. Very lightweight. It was done in a very quick way. They turned it around in a short amount of time and the advertisers were thrilled because it gave them an outlet that they didn't have before. It's a very simple solution to a problem and it was revenue bearing as well. You know, one of the things that that I have spoken with some of the clients about is considering syndicating content as well. As newsrooms become smaller and less well populated, I do think that there is something to be said for providing a steady stream of regional journalism to other publishers. What is it that you do particularly well? And, you know, are you very sure that other news organizations may not pay for this? And the first thing that publishers would say is, oh, well, we can't share this content. You know, it's our content. But... I think there really is something to be said for sweating your assets. We saw it in South Africa when the South African Press Association closed down. All of the big newsrooms in South Africa lost their daily stream of commodity news. Suddenly, news organizations had to start thinking about how they were going to do that themselves. And the result of that actually was within a very short space of time, three brand new news agencies popping up from the newsrooms of the newspapers that had lost that stream. I mean, that is really where innovation is born out of emergencies. When you have limited staff, limited finances and limited opportunities, that is really when organizations become very innovative. Charles Kanemagira of Kigali today has been thinking about ways to make money beyond news products. Daily news is notoriously hard to monetize, so publishers have to find ways to support it by bringing in money from elsewhere. We also have a media training center. We trained in photojournalism uh, for two years. That was a grant, so uh, that's how we got our cameras. It's cameras we've been using for five years, for example. And we had the same deal for, for, for radio. Maybe uh, 60% of our equipment came from those kind of trainings. It really seems like being a media today, I mean, anywhere, you know, there's just like constantly looking for more sources of income. Yeah, we are looking into eventing, event management, uh, organizing events. We wanted to start conferences and everything uh, around it. Uh, Magazines like thematic magazines, construction, uh, agriculture. One way of making money is to become specific. Producing a magazine or a targeted newsletter on a specific topic, for example, for a specialised audience, who advertisers want to reach. For Kanemagiri, this could work, but he says Rwanda's media landscape has some peculiarities that do affect what companies can do to increase their revenue. When you analyse neighbouring countries like Kenya, Uganda, they have a more vibrant private sector, more competition. So the, the business there, they feel the need to communicate and they have the means for that. Mm. So there's more advertising. Yeah, it's totally different here. The government is still the biggest media uh, partner. And then content-wise, we have a unique situation with uh, genocide and the hate media. You need to be more careful on uh, things like genocide, national unit and reconciliation, 
national security, you need to be extra cautious. If you, you want to do journalism as you do it in the States or in Congo or anywhere, and you, you want to do the same thing, to use the same word, to compare the same thing, you are in trouble. So you know you need to understand what you're doing and where you're doing it from. So you're already much more cautious and careful. Yeah, on some uh, subject, everyone knows. On some issues, uh, it's crystal clear. Is there like a budget line in there that you have to think about how to deal with crisis control and that kind of thing? No, no. I, I, I mean, Katie is getting like uh, maybe being sued like on a daily basis every day, never on sensitive uh, Are you saying you're getting sued every day? No, 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 no. I, I mean, we get, we, we're getting many, we're getting many. Not every day, but sometimes there more. So, I mean, when people don't understand that taking a picture in a public place uh, and you're taking a picture of a public figure, it's okay. And, and we have a media regulatory uh, body here. And if either party is not happy, you go to court. We've been to court just once in the last 10 years. Kigali today is struggling with reduced advertising, increased costs, and an overall difficult media environment. And yet, Kanemagiri is looking for ways to keep going, and is hopeful his online model will hold up. For legacy publishers, the prospect of shifting online and rethinking business models at the same time can be overwhelming. Truth of the matter is that most publishers are working from a burning platform and just don't really have the foresight, the time, the energy, the finances or anything else to think ahead to these sort of longer term strategic initiatives. They are literally fighting for their lives. Lisa McLeod is trying to help with strategy and that does not necessarily involve going all digital right away. I think that a lot of these companies have, their print sales will have some longevity if they can recover from the disaster that has been COVID, if they can. But even then, it is never too late to start thinking about what the digital future is going to look like. And the one thing about doing business out of Africa is that you have the ability to be able to jumpstart these processes by skipping a lot of the experimentation and the mistakes that have been made. So, for example, the whole of Europe reorganized itself around the launch of the iPad. I mean, iPads never really came to Africa. It's an area of product development that they do not have to think about. On the flip side, Africa is overwhelmingly mobile. And therefore, they have already had to, to think very carefully about how to distribute news on mobile formats without thinking about laptops and desktops to the same degree that the rest of the world did. So you're going straight from print to mobile, whereas in other places, there's been a lot of steps in between. And I think, you know, print has lifetime. Uh, there, there will still be some lifetime left in that. So when we are working with clients, we're thinking of stability. We're not talking about doubling your growth. What we're talking about is stability. We're talking about how to shore up your revenue lines, and we're talking about how to cut your cloth accordingly. So carrying the same size staff that you did when you were putting out a 42-page broadsheet every day and you had a circulation of 50,000 or 100,000 every single day, that can't happen any longer. You have to, you know, we, we talk a lot about rebalancing and reprioritizing in terms of budgets, in terms of uh, costs. Is that another word for laying people off? 
Of course it is, yeah. Business is business at the end of the day, and it's not realistic to carry on running your organizations in the same way you did in the glory days. Although, I mean, I get the impression that a lot of organizations have already done massive amounts of cuts. Also in the past year with COVID, people have had to really, you know, cut down. At some point, you can't cut anymore. No, you're quite right. And the the kind of message that we would be uh, putting forward is to firstly, if your company is about selling journalism and not selling advertising, you cannot cut your editorial teams to the bone. This is short-term thinking. And this is a very common reaction. It's happened all over the world. What we are talking about is thinking very carefully about operations, everything from finance to HR to technology. This is where a lot of money gets chewed up in these organizations. And I mean, I hate the prospect of layoffs. I don't think it's great at all. But we have to pivot to the situation and saving money, which can then be plowed back into the content aspect of the business. You know, none of it is easy and none of it is fun, but... There is a lot at stake. I am fundamentally concerned about what happens to journalism in Africa in the next five to ten years, you know. But the level of energy and people really trying new things is is really what I find very inspiring. You know, it's really good to see people actually trying things and not being scared to try. For media companies everywhere, the dilemma of securing today whilst looking forward to how the business will look tomorrow is the eternal question. African media especially have been confronted with an accelerated shift to digital platforms, particularly mobile, which has brought its own set of challenges as well as unique opportunities. What is clear is that the old business model, in decline for many years now, has been exposed through the current pandemic to be entirely inadequate to sustain business as usual. Media have no choice but to think creatively about how their journalism will survive. The pressure is enormous, the stakes incredibly high. If they don't adjust, there's a severe risk that we'll see fewer independent media holding power to account, in Africa and around the world. Ultimately, it's in all of our interests to see that the media succeeds, and we'll be exploring this further in future episodes. For resources about press freedom in Africa or information about the people and the programs mentioned in this episode, please visit the Press Freedom section of the WANIFRA website. That's wan-ifra.org. For all of our episodes, and to make sure you don't miss a new one, subscribe to The Backstory on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.